0: God does what his word says you know that's just kind of what we today um, we actually lived out Romans 14 you know Paul uh, Jesus gave parable after parable uh, especially Matthew 11 Matthew 12 about the kingdom of God Um, but Paul when he writes to the Romans Romans 14 he says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking but is righteousness peace and joy in the Holy Spirit actually says joy in the Holy Ghost and so I'm just so excited when God does what his word says and, and we are able to experience in our midst. So I want to start by telling you a, a story. Um, it's it's kind of my story that, that you know, but it's our story, too. It's... Um, God says things to you throughout your life, and you can either accept them or reject them, and some of the things that, and sometimes God says things that we don't quite grab a hold of, we don't try, quite get, because we don't understand, and because of that lack of understanding, we have a tendency, let, let me, let me change we to I, um, I have a tendency to disregard it, to just kind of, to, to, to slough it off, and, um, for years, I've wrestled with this word, um, apostolic, or as Joyous says, apostolistic. Um and um <laughs> and it, it's a very humbling and a very confusing word for me, or it was at least. And um, the Lord began to confront me with it a lot last year, with regard to our community, to regard to who we are, and. And uh, I remember when we were going down to uh, USC every week to pray before the call when we were fasting and praying for 40 days. And, and you know, one night Lou Engel, when when he called me up to pray, he says, you know, just so everybody knows, Rick, Rick has an, an apostolic call over the city of Azusa. And uh, I just, you know, I want to say, Lou, just, just put this aside. Let's just don't say this kind of stuff because it's really, I, I just don't know what to do with it. And so... Um, I just began to seek the Lord, and and I read a book while I was in... I read a number of books while I was in Australia. um, But one of them is called Apostolic Foundations by Art Katz. And really confronted me with the issue of what this word has to mean and specifically how it relates to us. Um, Because God is very jealous over this word. It's not just a word that just, you know... we have a tendency in the church to take words and make them titles and to kind of make them in vogue. And you can go to a number of Christian magazines or Christian websites and find apostles everywhere. And yet when we look at the the true meaning of, of the word apostle literally meant sent one. And if you talk to biblical scholars, if you study in, in, in college, they'll tell you that the criteria for an apostle in the New Testament was one who saw Jesus before, followed Jesus before he was crucified and saw him after he was resurrected and followed him after his resurrection. And Paul qualifies for that because he did see Jesus before he was crucified, but not as a disciple, and he did encounter Jesus on the road to Damascus, and that's why they say Paul could be called an apostle. So I'm not dealing with apostles. I'm dealing with this term apostolic. And, um, you know, the Lord designates himself as the high priest and apostle over the church says in Hebrews three, one and two, it says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him, who appointed him. And then there's this phrase here that, that God took me on a journey with this week, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So we have a comparison Of Jesus as apostle and high priest, and the writer of Hebrews, who of course he's writing to Hebrews, and the Jews are going to identify with Moses, but he compares Jesus as apostle and high priest to Moses, who is faithful in all his house. And we know the story of Moses. Um, You know, Moses is a Hebrew boy who um, really has a death penalty as all little Hebrew boys under two years of age had because just there were too many Jews in Egypt and they were afraid that too many Jews would overthrow the Egyptian reign and so let's just take care and kill all the boys. We don't have to worry about it. And you know the story, his mother hides him in a basket and he floats on the Nile and Pharaoh's daughter discovers him and raises him as his son. So we have this, this Moses. And before I get into Moses, because um, I want to talk about Moses really being the first one to have an apostolic call even though we don't hear about apostles we don't hear about apostolic things until the new testament um we i want to show because the lord says our community when i say our community i'm talking about this house really has a type of call that that moses had before he encountered pharaoh and we're going to look at that today um then it also says in ephesians paul when he writes that that the church has been been built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets Ephesians two nineteen and 20. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So this, this word apostle, which means sent one, and that which is not sent of God cannot accomplish or be empowered with the purposes of God. So one of the things I want us all to understand that we all are sent by God when we accept christ as our savior we have this um we have this call that god has on our life i think part of the and i'm going to talk about this in a few weeks but but part of the issue with us as followers of jesus is that we too often look at our lives in the context of this in the context of flesh and blood when the reality is we are eternal you know It says, before the foundations of the earth were laid, before God knit us in our mother's womb, he knew us. So that's eternity past. Then there's also a time of eternity future where every person who's walked in a shell we call humanity is going to be judged for a choice they made with Jesus, to accept or to reject him. But in the meantime, this life we live We have to learn how to change our mindset that God did not call us to be humans. God called us to be eternal. God created us to be eternal. Our life is not defined by the moment we take our first breath and the moment we take our last breath. Our life is defined by the spirit and the soul that lives within us that is eternal. And if we live our life according to an eternal value, according to seeing this life, that this body is just temporary, everything changes in how we approach what God's called us to do. And when you study the life of Paul, Paul got that. Over and over and over again, Paul talks about his eternal position and who he is in Christ eternally, and he never really dealt with the flesh. When he talks about, look at, you know, guys, you got nothing on me. All the times I've been shipwrecked, all the times I've been stoned, all the times I've been whipped, all the things that I've gone through, the times I've gone without food, the times I've been cold, all of that, all of that's nothing because I'm eternal. You know, I I have this eternal call, and so I want to talk a little bit about this word apostolic, because I've had to come to a special respect of it because of the struggle I've had with it. Um, Multiple times, prophetic words, it was used in defining me or our ministry, and I finally got to a time where I struggled with it so much, I just said, you know what? People just don't know Rick, And, and this word is way too big to be attached to me or what god's called us to do so i just pushed this aside and just totally disregarded it um because i was studying the word apostle and not the word apostolic and over and over and over again i would have prophetic words in the midst of it would be this word apostolic and even when we were in australia a couple of times when they spoke to me about this word i'm going guys come on this is this is rick and then recently, the Lord confronted me, and he said, you know how the Lord is. He just always nails us right where we are. He says, how many people do I have to send to say that to you before you believe it? And I said, okay, so if you want me to believe it, I've got to understand it. And the, the truth is, the word's not easy to define. The word's not easy to hold on to. There's something about this word and its meaning that's the very heart of faith the very heart of who we all are as followers of Jesus Christ and particularly I want, I'm going to be specific today about those of us who are in Azusa you know I've spent my entire life well except for the first 18 years I've spent my entire life in this city I mean God's, God's called me and, and, and told me to die in this city and so people who follow and who have been a part of whether we were pastoring the four square church for 30 years or doing this for the last however many years we've been doing it 12-13 years um, it's about this city. God has called us as a people the this city. And I know that those who are regular part and regular pray, today we pray for this city. There's something, in a specific dynamic about being called to Azusa. And so it's it's not thought, apostolic is not thought to be merely a personal identification, but more specifically, it has the community deeply ingrained in this word. And so... First of all, are are we a community that's worthy of this word? Are we an apostolic community? Um, You know, you can't find, if you look up apostolic in the dictionary, they don't get it, and the definition is really kind of pusillanimous. Um, So we have to apprehend what this word really represents. The early church was called the apostolic church. In fact, the book of Acts is not called Acts. It's called the Acts of the Apostles. It's about the apostolic life of a group of people who were willing, who understood they were eternal, who understood their life was not flesh and blood, understood the kingdom of God was not eating and drinking, but was righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost, and they lived their lives as dead men. That's why Paul could say for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. That's why Paul could say I've counted all things as lost for the sake of the cross. Well, that's why Paul says I've become all things to all men that I might win a few. Paul understood that this life that we live, this, this span that God has given us in on-the-job training to be eternal rulers is not life, because life is eternal. And so we have to understand this, this apostolic foundation, you know, is based upon those who see one thing and one thing alone. Our goal is simply this, a collective people radically and jealously committed to all things to bring glory to God alone. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about Azusa House of Prayer. It's, not, it's simply about the glory of God. Everything that we do should be motivated by one thing and one thing alone, that he would be glorified. And God is glorified most when the lost become found. God is glorified most when those who are seeking and looking for hope find the hope that comes in Jesus Christ alone. And so I believe only an apostolic community can stand and overcome as we pray and as we work together as we deal with sent ones. Now, we have we, we have sent ones. And in, a, in a few weeks, we're going to be praying over uh, the Luandes. They're going to go back to Malawi. Um, their visas are up on the 19th, I think, and so they're leaving on the 18th. Yeah, something like that. Um, it's not just his visa here, but also um, Wendy and the kids visas in Malawi so they all kind of coordinate on the same day and we're going to in the first Sunday in June we are going to as a community um, we're going to ordain um, Sonoya to send him back to uh, Malawi as an ordained minister and uh, so that's going to be an awesome day so here's the nature and the genius of the church we need to apprehend and be apprehended by this word apostolic. And when I say we, can we just, pre- j- just let's be real here. I'm talking, to my, I'm talking to the guy I see out of the corner of my eyes in the mirror there. So that's who I'm talking to, and you're just listening to this conversation as I talk to myself. Um, you know, it's a word that's fallen on disuse. It's a word that, that uh, needs to be restored, but it needs to be restored with full understanding. and It needs to be restored with, with dignity and with holiness, um, and, and so this restoration of restoring this word isn't cheap because to walk in the fullness of this word costs everything. It's, it, you, you can't one foot in and one foot out. It, it's all or nothing when you're called to do what God's called you to do and walk through the preparation. And God's true works have to emanate from a people of a particular kind, like it was at the church at Antioch. And as we look at the Acts of the Apostles in chapter 13, it says now, in that, in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Now, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menen, um, who had been t- brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, they're talking about the church at Antioch, ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. And this word sent is apostolos. So Paul and Barnabas, the first missionaries, the church of Antioch had this zeal for the Gentiles, Antioch being a Gentile church, the zeal for the Gentiles to know this Messiah Jesus who came as Messiah to the Jews, but who died for all. And they had such a passion that they as a community ministered to the Lord. That means they ministered to the Lord. That means that they discharged a function, officiating as a priest, serving God with prayer and fasting. You see, the church at Antioch got this thing that where, you know, Paul says that we are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation set apart. We are a chosen generation. They understood that. And so as they fasted and prayed and they waited upon the Lord, they understood that even though they had certain prophets and teachers, and, and we have this group of names of guys, all of them prophets and teachers, it wasn't just Paul and Barnabas or Saul at the time. It was Simeon who was called Niger. It was Lucius of Cyrene. It was Menaean, you know, who, who grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. They had these guys who grew up in the church who they respected, but they just didn't want to say, because you're a prophet, because you're, you know, you're a teacher, we're going to send you out. We want to send the right two out. And so they fasted and they prayed and they waited upon the Lord for the Holy Spirit to give them instruction on who to send out. And they were in agreement. There wasn't division. They were in agreement after fasting and praying, ministering to the Lord, the two guys we're going to send out first are Barnabas and Saul. And, you know, later, Barnabas and Saul, I mean, God God uses conflict to cause growth because Barnabas and Saul got in a fight over John Mark, you know, and and, uh, John Mark had to be corrected. We're not sure what about. And, And all of a sudden, you know, Barnabas thought it's time. Let's take him out. And Paul said, no, it's not. So Barnabas said, fine, I'll take him. And then Paul ends up with Silas and they go. And so two now become four. So God even uses conflict and disagreement to go and to propagate the gospel. So this is the the commissioning ministry of of great Paul's great apostolic ministry. You know, and, and so the question becomes, who are we sending? To where and to what are we sending them? So it's not just being sent to a community. We have a number in this fellowship who believe they're called to the nations now. They don't know exactly how that's going to play out. We don't either. They're, they're young. They're zealous. You know, but the call is the call. You know, you, you can't shake it. So they may go or or the nations may come here or, or somewhere else. But we do know this. We have those who are ready to go at a moment's notice, wherever God would call them. It doesn't matter what nation. It doesn't matter what people group. Just to go with the gospel and power and authority, not just to preach the gospel. I don't want to minimize preaching. To lay hands on the sick of so the recovered, to lay hands on the dead and they'll be raised, to prophesy, to come and to see entire nations changed. So I want us, though, to look at, because this is what God said He said, You're a pop, You are, I almost said apostolic, you are apostolic in the model of Moses. Now, when the Lord said that to me, I said, Whoa, 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 that's Rick, that's not God, because Rick and Moses were not in the same boat at all. But the Lord said, I'm not talking about the Moses who is 80. I'm talking about the Moses who was 40 and then showed up when he was 80. I want to talk to you about those 40 years when he was on the backside of Midian. And he was just taking care of sheep in the middle of the desert. And so I want to read to you Exodus. I didn't put it all in the notes, the part I want to read, because that would have been more than four pages and you all would have not come if there were more than four pages of notes. So I'm going to read the entire passage, uh, even though I only have part of it there. Um, And so it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, The bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I'll certainly be with you, and and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. (coughs) Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial to all generations. So we have this anatomy of a timeless practice of God, of sending people. So there's five times in this passage that we see the word sent or send. One time he says send, the other four times he says sent. So Moses, a shepherd on the backside of the desert, on the base of the Mount of Horeb, encounters God, and God says, I am sending you. You are the one who will be sent to this people. Now here's, to me, the crucial part of the story. When Moses is on the backside of Mount Horeb in Midian, and Horeb is the mountain of God, and he sees this bush burning but not being consumed, there's this phrase. Moses said, I will now turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush does not burn. Moses wasn't called by God. God didn't say, hey, Moses, come over here. God didn't say, aren't you curious? Don't you want to know what's going on? It says that Moses turned aside from what he was doing to go and to approach the bush and to try and understand why it was burning, but it wasn't being consumed. And it wasn't until he turned to walk toward the bush that God said, wait, hold on. Don't come any closer. Take your sandals off because you're about to walk on holy ground. See, only when God saw Moses turn from what he was doing to focus on who God was at that moment did God speak to him. And when God spoke to him, the turning aside was that pivotal, critical moment. Because if Moses had just kept going, or Moses had said that was interesting, if Moses had tended to the sheep and hadn't had the conversation with God, we don't know what would have happened. God obviously wanted to get Moses' attention, and Moses this former prince, now just a shepherd on the backside of a mountain, turns and encounters the bush. So much is hanging on that moment. God waiting for Moses to come and to examine what God was doing. And it wasn't just rescuing Jews from Egyptians. God made it pretty clear. You're not just going to set the people free. I'm going to have you deal with Pharaoh. You're going to go and you're going to confront the man who thinks he is me. You understand, Pharaoh thought he was a god. The people had to worship Pharaoh as a god. So it's not just Moses, you're going to go confront and, and set the people free. It's not so much about the people are going to say, why should we follow you, buddy? You've got to go confront the god who is the guy who has been their god, who says he's their god all these years. And you know him pretty well used to live in the household. And so here we have Moses. Now, let's go to 40 years earlier. Moses, out of his own self-initiated contact, tried to do good for his people. So there was something in Moses, even though rescued as an infant, Just being weaned from his mother in a basket on the Nile, rescued and brought and raised in the house of Pharaoh as a prince. You know, and and at the same time being able to be taught about the things of Israel because his mother becomes his nursemaid. So while his mother is nursing, while his mother is there teaching him the things of the Jews and the Hebrews, now Moses is 40 years old, he's a grown man he sees that the taskmasters, the Egyptian taskmasters, are very harsh to the people, and he sees one of the taskmasters beating one of the Jews. And something wells up within Moses and says, I have to stop this. They're afflicting my people, the ones my mother had taught me about all these years in the the temple or the palace of the Pharaoh. And so it says, listen to what it says. Now, it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren, meaning the Jews, and looked on their hard labors and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that, and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses sees the affliction, wants to get revenge, but knows you just can't go up and kill somebody, even if you're a prince. So he waits until nobody's looking. He kills this guy, and he buries him thinking nobody saw him. But you know the rest of the story, somebody did see him. When he had confronted another taskmaster, his response was, what, are you going to, or, or two Jews were fighting, what, are you going to kill us like you killed him? And Moses, recognizing at that moment that he had been discovered, out of fear, fled Egypt and was gone for 40 years. It's in those 40 years, he gets his wife, and now he's living in the white, in the house of his father-in-law, Jethro who's a priest in Midian. So, Moses' conduct, when he tried to take it into his own hand, he kills one Egyptian. And he had to flee to the wilderness, but it took 40 years for God to perfect in Moses, for God to do in Moses what had to be done in order for Moses to do what he was trying to do when he was 40 years old. So for 40 years, Moses had to learn what God wanted him to be in order to be this apostolic one who's being sent to lead a people out of captivity. So though Moses was called of God, he wasn't yet qualified to be a deliverer. He lacked the fear of the Lord, and he lacked an awareness of God. So even though he grew up and his mother told him who his people was, he had no idea who God was because he was raised to be taught that the house he grew up in was the house of God. The man who was his adopted grandfather was a god to the Egyptians. So he was raised to believe that God was Pharaoh, and so God had to take Moses out of Egypt and had to bring him to a dry desert place in order for him to learn who God really was. And in order for Moses to learn who God really was, Moses had to be in a place where he would forget Everything he had been taught before. So God orders his steps and he finds a wife. And his father-in-law is a priest. And we, we must believe he's a priest under the Lord because it doesn't say any other thing. It he says he's a priest of Midian. And so Moses grows up in this house now, these next 40 years with his wife. And he's under the leadership of this man. And he's unlearning everything he learned in the house of Pharaoh. And he becomes a shepherd on the backside of Mount Horeb in Midian. Now, you have to understand, for Egyptians, when you talk about jobs, being a shepherd was the lowest of the low. It was the job nobody wanted. Because all you did was deal with stinky sheep all day. You just sat and you watched. And your job was to make sure that no wild animals came and destroyed them and nobody came and stole them and you just watched them as they grazed. It was the lowest of the low. But Because Moses lacked the, the fear of God, because he lacked this awareness of God, his whole position was horizontal. He saw everything in this view. He didn't understand this, this consideration of looking up. Um, and just because... Something needs to be done and something needs to be rectified is not a justification for us to do it. Too often times in the church, we see things that need to be done and we get this attitude, well, nobody else, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? And one of the things we have to learn is that's not our problem. God's got somebody set aside to do that, and it might be you, but you better make sure it's you before you go and do it. And God had set Moses aside already to be a deliverer when he was born because he's the little boy who gets rescued when all of his playmates get killed or all the other babies get killed. He's the one that gets rescued. So God had a plan for this deliverer's life. But God had to undo 40 years of ungodly learning so it took 40 years for him to learn how to be ungodly. It was going to take 40 years for him to be emptied of everything he had learned before. And so for 40 years, Moses is gone. There, there's something about the whole structure of church life that compels us to do things without waiting. I've, you know, I've, I've been there. Um, you know, it's, it's always kind of a, uh, it's an interesting conversation. When you talk to the leadership at Azusa Pacific they always wonder why there's no church that can get large enough in Azusa to compel the majority of the students to come to that church. <clears throat> and they've tried. They've tried churches on campus. Um, they, they've given land and paid for churches to be built, Foothill Community Church. They, they have done everything they know to do to try and have a, a campus church, per se, that's not associated with the campus, kids get the kids get chapel all week they don't want them to go to chapel on sunday but there's something about azusa that doesn't allow churches to grow and when we pastored the foursquare church you know my goal was to be the church to be the one all the apu students want to come to let's let's do everything we have to do and so we had people who worked with um Peter Wagner at the Institute for Church Growth, and we went to all the seminars, and we did all the things, and we, did, we worked hard to make a church grow. But it was because of uh, impatience. It was because of self-will. It was because of, of religious ambition. I wanted the other pastors to see that I was successful. I wanted other churches to look at our church and go, wow, look at that one over there at the time I didn't realize that was my motivation I thought I was really doing kingdom business that God really wanted the church to grow so I had to do everything I needed to do to make sure we could build this church and so we had this religious zeal we we really pushed hard you know but then there comes a time we have to recognize everything you've tried to do everything you've learned has to be killed God just has to take And he has to remove the knowledge that we have, let it die, so that God's purposes can really be done. For us, it was never an issue of whether we should be in Azusa. I mean, it was at the beginning. But after God made it clear that he wanted us to die here, okay, we knew we were called to this city. But for too long, we thought we were called to the city to build a church as opposed to being called to a city to pray a city into revival, to pray a city into what God has ordained it would be done before the foundations of the earth. You know, to, to remind you that Azusa Street got its name from the city of Azusa. When Dalton gave that property to the city of Azusa, I mean to the city of L.A., Divided down the middle by a street One half went to the LA Archdiocese The other half went to the city of Los Angeles To recognize the gift That street that divided the two parcels of land They named Azusa Street after Rancho Azusa Which Dalton owned It was Rancho Azusa that had the heritage of Coma And the healing ministry So the Azusa Street revival was birthed prophetically Out of something that had happened 200 years prior and so this city is not insignificant. This city has a heritage. It has a destiny. It's been, a, it's been tied to revival, and it's tied continually to what God's doing in this day and this hour. So when a church gets impatient to perform, you get this mindset of how else do we justify ourselves. If we don't have all the programs, if we don't have everything going on, if we're not just killing ourselves. You know, night and day, if we're not forsaking our children, my wife and I have so often, we are so grateful that our kids, like so many pastor's kids, they ended up walking away from the church because we were married to the church and we weren't with them. And, and believe me, we gave them plenty of reason, plenty of excuse to do it. We ate, we drank, we breathed Church seven days a week 52 weeks a year 365 days for 30 years that's how we lived our life and so we work so hard to justify our existence we work so hard to to have this shining whatever on a hill and so programs 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 we're always coming up with programs to draw people i remember the biggest program we had was um they started this, this youth thing called U-Turn. And so it, became, it was a four-square thing. So all the churches, you know, to get this youth thing going, U-Turn. And so we started this thing where we were getting high schools to challenge each other in really godly things, hamburger eating contests. And so I remember we had to go to every McDonald's in Azusa to cut a deal to get cheeseburgers. So we ended up with about 2,000 cheeseburgers and about 1,000 high schoolers. And these two, high, two main high schools, Azusa High School and Gladstone High School, were going to have a hamburger eating contest to see who could eat the most hamburgers. Isn't that godly? You know, and our goal was to get them all there so then our youth pastor, Fernando, could get up on the roof of the U-turn room and preach over the parking lot. I mean, it was great. It was awesome. All these kids were here. We thought we had arrived. You know how many kids got saved that night? Zero. You know how many kids got free food? About 1,000. But we tried to do all these things to build a church, to build a youth group, to be, to be the one. You know, and we had two schools we were tied into. We had Azusa Pacific, but we also had Life Bible College or Life Pacific now. And so we tried to draw from both of those, and we did pretty good to get college kids, but we could never really get a lot of high school kids, no matter how hard we tried. We we couldn't build the youth group. And so after all of that, and after my wife and I felt like, you know, God was telling us to leave that and to start a house of prayer, you know, we really like, you know, was we're going to walk away from it all, and we're just going to rent a little room and... Our entire congregation, when we left Foursquare, our entire congregation voted to come with us. And, uh, you know, within a few months, there was about 20 of us left. You know, you just it's it's hard to be committed to pray for a city. It's hard to be committed to pray for the things that God wants you to do. And uh, there were days, it was just Janet and I here, just, just praying, you know, just believing what God said just trying to remain faithful. And so, and, and, and I remember it, it came to that moment, and I still struggle at that moment sometimes where I say, God, who am, who am I? You know, who are we? I mean, I mean, look at this, you know. Moses was a broken man at that time. When, when, that, when he goes to that bush, when, when he turns to look and God says, okay, good move, but take your shoes off. And God begins to tell Moses what he's going to do you're the one I've chosen. You're the sent one. His response is, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa! Who am I? Who am I that you're going to send me?" That was what God was waiting for for forty years. Forty years earlier, He said, "Look who I am. I'm going to rescue all my people, and I'm just because I'm a Pharaoh's house. I'm going to go and I'm going to take care of it." God says, "No, that's not how my deliverers work." So forty years later. Moses, completely broken of everything he was raised in, completely broken of any identity he had. His his human qualifications initially were high. You know, genealogically speaking, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Levite. You know, so he was of the priestly tribe. So so he was of high order politically. He had all the clout because he was a prince of Egypt. Therefore, he was versed in all the wisdom and all the knowledge of Egypt. So he had both things gone for him. But a man truly emptied of himself has no confidence that he can perform anything. And that's where God wanted Moses. God wanted Moses empty of the programs, emptied of the wisdom of Egypt, emptied of all the knowledge of Egypt. He wanted him simply to stand before God and bring him to that moment where he would say, wait, are you kidding me? Who am I? I'm here on the backside of the desert with a bunch of stinky sheep minding my own business. Who am I that you're going to send me to do this thing? There's no man more qualified than the one who believes he's without qualification. Let me say that again because I still am trying to get it through this head of mine. There's no man or woman more qualified than the one who feels like they don't have the qualifications to do what God calls them to do. And there's no community more qualified than the one that feels is without qualification. You see, you, you look around this room, we're here almost every day for hours praying for the city, praying for revival. And um, we get, God gives us little kisses, you know, just enough to keep us going sometimes. And other times it's faith. We just believe what he said. But we really are a community that can say, God, look at us. You know, we can't even put a sign on the building because the city will shut us down. Who are we? I and mean, we're, we're, we're basically, you know, a, a, a bunch of nobodies. And God says, Exactly. That's exactly why I'm choosing you. You're a bunch of nobodies. I don't need somebodies. I need people who recognize they can't do anything without me, but will do whatever I ask them to do. I mean, do you understand for Moses? He wasn't just asking God, who am I? He was looking at himself and going, seriously? I I can't do this. I'm not gonna, I've been gone 40 years I'm a murderer They'll probably kill me the moment I get there Because I murdered an Egyptian Who am I to go back to the house that I grew up in And to tell them to let Their economy come with me Because their entire economy Was built upon the black back of Jewish slaves So Moses wasn't asking God Moses was looking at himself And he's going seriously I stink I smell like sheep I'm in the middle of nowhere, and this bush shows up, and God calls me. But that's what God's looking for. God is looking for a people. God is looking for a community of believers who do not find their identity in what they do, but find their identity in what Jesus has done. And we're willing to pay the price or pray the price to walk in that to see it fulfilled. I believe every single promise God has given for the city. I don't doubt one of them. Will I live to see them all? I hope so. But even if I don't, God doesn't change. God does not change. So God doesn't think it's wasteful to give Moses another 40 years in the wilderness. You know, he waits until Moses is completely emptied of himself. He waits until... A community doesn't see how in the world they're going to do it. How is a community going to pray in revival in a city? How is a a little community of believers going to pray revival into a large Christian university that thinks they don't need revival? How does that happen? But Here's the thing. Rarely does God call us to act in response to a need. Moses is not sent because Moses sees the need. Moses already saw the need and tried to fix the need. Moses is sent because God saw their affliction. See, God says this, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. We're not to go on the basis of our seeing. We're to go on the basis of God's sending. Moses didn't go because he saw. Moses went because God said, I'm sending you. You will be sent. I'm sending you. You will be sent. God has said to this community, this apostolic community, that sits in this little room in the back of nowhere, that we're not doing what we're doing because we saw a need. We're doing what we're doing because God has sent us. God has called us to this place to do what we're doing. And he called us because he knew he could trust us. I mean, you understand that? He knew that the moment Moses was emptied of himself was the moment God could trust him. When Moses had no agenda, when Moses had, there was not an ounce of ego left in him. Not only was he no longer the prince of Egypt, he was a murderer. He was living in the middle of nowhere, doing the job nobody in Egypt ever wanted to do. And now he's gone from prince to a nothing. And God says, I got you where I want you. God waited for Moses for 40 years. Now, you know, and God didn't see that as as wasteful or extravagant because He let an entire generation suffer under the oppression of Egyptian rule while he waited for Moses to become who he's supposed to be. So for 40 years, the people of Israel suffered more under Egyptian dominion while God waited for Moses to get to this moment. Do we as an apostolic community... Know that God in that way. You know, that God wants us to have no preconceived ideas or ideals of how this is going to look or play out. God simply wants us to say, here we are. You tell us to go. You tell us what to say. And even though we don't feel like we have the words, we trust you to put the words in our mouth. An apostolic community is sent to a place of God's choosing, not a choosing of their own. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I did not choose Azusa. I mean, you know that. When God confronted us in a meeting in Escondido, we had already given our resignation to our district supervisor. We were already looking for a church either in Oregon or Colorado. We wanted to go where it was beautiful. And we were about to go plant a church in Fort Collins, Colorado, just to say goodbye, Azusa. You are unreachable. We deserve better than Azusa. How arrogant is that? And God stops a meeting with a thousand pastors and has one man get on a platform and says, I had a whole message tonight, but God sent me here to talk to one couple. And he sat down, and everything we were doing, point by point, he says, God says you're doing this. 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 And he says, Stop. Unpack your bags. And then later, as we went up to the, the speaker and said, hey, we're the couple, his first response was, I know. <laughs> well, why couldn't you just take us aside then and tell us, why'd you have to do it for everybody? And then he said this, God can't use you right now because you're trying to commit spiritual adultery because he is giving you a community and you're seeking another. So we had to come back. We had to undo our resignation. We had to come back and tell our congregation what we were doing. And what is it that, at that moment, we were emptied of everything. We said, okay, God, what do we do? And his answer was pray. So from that time on, 1993 until today, our life has been praying for the city. And that's what we do. Human nature is expedient. Human nature is utilitarian. We want to get everything done. As fast as we can with the greatest amount of efficiency. But our ways aren't his ways. And our thoughts aren't his thoughts. And uh, we tend to operate more out of timing of modern things than out of the timelessness of an eternal God. See, God has a plan. Uh, His son's coming back. And God has a heart. It tells us that he wants none to perish but all come to repentance. And he does that by using sent ones. Ones who he sends to a community, to a neighborhood, to not just pray, but to love them and to present the gospel to them. So serving God on the backside of life, that's kind of where we are right now. Moses led a flock on the backside of the desert where the Mount of God was found. Now isn't that interesting? Moses didn't know at the time that the mountain where he was sitting was the mountain of God. He just thought it was a piece of mountain on his his father-in-law's property in Midian. And the interesting thing is, he was on the backside of the mountain. The implication is, the front side was the lush, growing place. The backside, it says, you know, it was called Horeb. We would probably call it horrid. (laughs) Yeah, horrible. Horeb literally means dry, decimated, barren, and impoverished. So Moses was at the dry... Decimated, barren, impoverished moment of his life when God said, Here I am. God encountered him. And it's not only where God is found, but it's also what God is. You see, God is not the bells and whistles, God is not the lush side of life. Egypt for, for Israel, you know, as, as oppressive as it was, you know, when they get out in the wilderness, what do they long for? Egypt they want onions they want garlics you know they want three squares a day they want a roof over their head Egypt became the lush they, they wanted the lush because they wanted to forsake the desert the dryness and again if, if you know the story another generation had to die off before they could enter the promised land so 40 years as a prince of pharaoh 40 years as a shepherd and then 40 years as a deliverer. Each time there's a generation God's dealing with. God always is found in the unexplainable place. That's why Jesus was born in a manger, in a stable. That's why, you know, David's, David's army, you know, a bunch of indebted, disappointed nobodies, if, if you remember that story, that that before David goes and hides in the cave, he comes upon the king of Gath, and uh, David's afraid of the king of Gath. He thinks, this army's way more powerful than what I've got. And understand, David's fleeing from Saul, so he's got Saul behind him. He's got Gath in front of him. And it says that David's plan was, I know, I'll make him think I'm crazy. He'd already killed Goliath. And where was Goliath from? Gath. So David already had a reputation in Gath. So it says David walked up to the gate of the city and drooled down his beard and pretended to be crazy so that they would not kill him. And that's the that guy This said, this is the guy that killed Goliath? He is the crazy guy. And so David ran off to the cave by himself. And it says shortly after that, the indebted, the disappointed, the rejects, nobody wanted, came and served with David and became known as his mighty army, as his mighty men. See, that's, that's what God looks for. You know, it, it takes fortitude and perseverance to serve God on the backside of the mountain. It's easy to serve him on the front side. The backside's unsavory, it's unbecoming, it's unspectacular. The front side is where the action is. It's lush, there's glitter, there's big names, there's activity. You know, and we have to see the backside because the backside is where God is on his mountain. Egypt was the epitome of human wisdom and civilization, but Horeb was entirely the opposite. And that's where God encounters. God hears the cry of his people, God sees the need, and he chooses this man who would already chosen, we have to have the confidence in God's compassion and mercy and in his sovereignty that he will save us from self-initiated activity to where we will become premature saviors of a city. Let me say that again. We have to keep waiting. We can't rush this thing God has called us to do. As much as we prayed for a building, we believe we know the building, as much as we have apartments that we're wrestling to get ownership back of, as long as we have a house that we're supposed to have for interns, just because that isn't happening, we can't rush and hurry it up. We can't try and figure out a way to say, okay, how can we do this? How can we do that? God wants us to wait so that when it's all done, I'll go back to what I said, God's looking for a people who are nobodies, whose one ideal, whose one goal is this, that God would be glorified. Because temples and houses and apartments are not about us. It's about the glory of God. It's about what he's determined to do in a city. It's about his plan to have the biggest impact without any program to confront people with the reality of who he is. And you know, the Egyptians had to do that. When Moses showed up, exactly what Moses said was going to happen, happened. They said, what? Who in the world are you that you think you can do this?" I mean, he had to convince millions of people. And so the plagues were not only for his battle with Pharaoh, the plagues were also to show the children of Israel who God was. And the children of Israel were grateful for Goshen because when cattle were dying in where Pharaoh was, they weren't dying in Goshen. And where plagues were coming, where Pharaoh was, plagues weren't coming in Goshen. They saw the protection of God in the midst of all that God was doing. And we need to understand that God still has a Goshen. God still has a place of protection regardless of what it looks like around us. Did you want to say something? Probably Egyptian gods. I mean, they had their idols. You know that when they get to Sinai and, and Moses is on top of Mount Sinai, what do they do? They melt all their gold to build another god. So they're going to build a God of only the kind of gods they know. So they of the God. Well, <coughs> it, it had been they were aware of him, but they weren't serving him. We well, did have the peace, you know, the priests. He had Aaron, you know, he had Joshua and Caleb. But, yeah, for the most part, they were not serving God. Yeah. You're right. So there's a remnant. Okay? All right. So, what's the root of apostolic character that God has called us to? What's the root of who we are? God isn't going to send a person or a community who is half baked in the understanding of God's ways. God isn't going to let us just walk with half knowledge. He wants us to walk in the full knowledge. The single distinctive trait and apostolic foundation for a church is the knowledge of God. And that is knowing who he is and what he's called us to do. Not what we think him to be, but who he actually is. And that knowledge isn't cheap. It takes years to obtain. It took Moses 40 years. And even then he wasn't quite sure. And so if we subscribe to an easy intellectual understanding of God, we can't be sent because God doesn't send people who have just a head knowledge of who he is. If we haven't wrestled with, righteousness, with the righteousness of God, then he's not going to send us. If we haven't dealt with the judgments of God and why he allows suffering, he's not going to send us because we're going to encounter that along the way. And if we don't understand it, we'll give up. <clears throat> we'll give up. So we have to press in what God's called us to do. So what's, what's the purpose of God calling somebody in advance and then requiring it to happen a long time later? That's kind of where I am. One of the things we find in Scripture is 40 is a significant number. Whenever 40 is used in Scripture, it's always in the context of testing. Uh, you've got uh, Moses' 40 years in Midian. You've got the children of Israel's is 40 years in the wilderness. You've got Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness where he's preparing for ministry. There's always this time of testing, so we need to respect the extraordinary preparation that God requires of a community for service. And and I don't want this to be taken wrong, but if what God calls us to was easy, he could call anybody because there are a lot of Christians who are willing to do the easy thing. And and I'm not saying that judgmentally because I was, I, I was there. I would much rather do the easy thing. You know, I'd much rather have a 1,000 hamburgers bring in 300 kids into a youth group than spend a 1,000 hours in prayer for three. But that's the way God does it. That's the way God works it. See, for 40 years, all Moses did was watch sheep. Now, I've seen sheep. I just saw a few sheep in Australia. You know what? Kind of boring. They are stupid. That's a whole different sermon. (laughs) Yes, David's also a shepherd. And David, even though he's like 15 or 16 when he's called, look at all he has to go through before he actually becomes king. You know? So there's something served in monotony that requires steadfastness, faithfulness, and patience. If Mosin hadn't done that, he wouldn't be qualified to bring a flock out of Egypt. He knew what it was like to oversee a flock in Midian, and now he would just see a little larger flock who, quite frankly, were just like sheep. And, and I can't really point fingers at the Jews coming out of Egypt and say, you dummies, because I've done enough things When I know who God is, I've done enough stupid things. But you figure after you see God part the Red Sea, you know, and you cross it, and you see all those chariots get swallowed up, and you get up every morning, and there's food on the ground, and there's this rock that follows you wherever you go, so you always have water. You you figure that would be enough to go, wow, God really takes care of us. But just like sheep, stupid. You know, sheep will unless you tell them exactly where to go, they will walk off a cliff. And the other thing about sheep is that when sheep become encircled by attackers, instead of running away, they run together in a group, and the outside ones are always trying to get in the middle. And so they just become easy picking for the enemy because they don't know how to flee. Instead, they just kind of stand there and become dead meat. Well, whichever one's on the outside of the circle. So we've been serving our apprenticeship in the things that are ordinary, unseen, and undistinguished. This is the sublime wisdom and requirement of God, moving from a prince to a shepherd. For Moses, it came out of circumstances, fleeing from Egypt, finding himself a Midian. It was God's perfect, necessary preparation for a man who was the prince in Egypt. I truly believe and I know because the time I have spent with God that our apprenticeship is about to end and God's moment to express himself is about to come. And just let me say this. If you look at those 40 years for Moses, getting them out of Egypt was the easy part. It was the 40 years in the desert that was the hard part. So just because we've prayed for things and God has given us promise and we're going to see things come to pass, we're going to see a Buddhist monk either get saved or moved out and that temple will become a house of prayer. That's the easy part. What follows afterwards? Revival in a city that will touch a valley, that will touch a nation? That's hard. That's dirty. That's messy. That's wearisome. You, You mean... You'd almost rather be a shepherd on the backside of Midian than deal with this. We've known something. We've been called to something. We've had a revelation of something. God is about to reveal all that's been done in this waiting. So it's not the time to quit. It's the time to press in. But just to know when we're going to get what he's told us to get prepared to receive, that's just opening the door to what he's about to do. And as much as, and I say this often, but as much as we've prayed for, we've fasted for, we've cried for revival in this city, we really are not yet at the place where we can fully handle and appreciate it. Because I think God still has us on the backside of Horeb in Midian. He's still perfecting some things in us so that when it happens, because it's the broken people that get saved first. It's, It's not the... It's not the ones that shower every day and have a nice home to go to. It's the broken people that get saved first. The ones who understand what it is to be hopeless and recognize their hopelessness and identify with it and they embrace hope. Those are the ones you deal with first in revival. And as much as we pray for it and believe for it, we need to know God's still getting us ready um, because it is going to be 24 7 365 day commitment it's not going to be oh good let's say a sinner's prayer pat him on the head send him out the door with a sack lunch and say God bless you so now's not the time to quit now's the time to keep praying and keep praying and keep believing and, and just remember this word and, and it says it three times in Scripture. I'm always brought back to Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said, will he not do? And that's Absalom quoting <laughs> to, uh, who's the guy who hired him? Huh? Yeah, Yes. I'm sorry, Balaam to Balak, that when he was being hired to prophesy against Israel and he couldn't do it. He says, I can't lie because God doesn't lie. I can't prophesy against Israel because God's for Israel. So the things God has said, God doesn't speak into a vacuum. They are truth. He does not lie. What he has said, he will do. Has he not said it, he will surely do it. We need to hold on to that. John, you have something you want to say? No? Okay, then let's pray. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, God. Lord, this call to be an apostolic community, to be just a bunch of nobodies on the backside of Horeb who are patiently waiting as we are transformed from glory to glory to do what you've called us to do. Lord, we know there are people outside this building, in this city, even those who... Go to a Christian university who don't know you, who have I no idea who you are. Those, God, who have embraced the church as opposed to embracing Jesus. God, we know what we're called to. We know what we're called to pray. We just ask that you will continue to find us faithful. God, we truly are at the place to say, who are we that you would send us? But we're also at the place, God, where we have this eternal perspective To know that everyone's going to come to a moment and stand before you. And our great call is to make sure that everyone we encounter, you know their name. Their name's written in the book. That's the primary goal of who we are. That none perish, but all come to repentance. So Father, continue to do your work in us and through us by the Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.